Right. Uh, let's pray before we dive into the Word together. Well, Father, we thank you for that worship set, that time of uh, singing praises to you. And uh, Lord, as we seek to yield ourselves uh, before you, uh, we ask that you would have your way in us through your Word. And may, as a church, may we be uh, a changed church, a continually improving church, Lord, as a result of uh, your message to us today. And so we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you were to think back to when you were uh, looking for a church, uh, maybe you were just moved to this area and you were looking for a church, and maybe you found a couple of churches uh, you were kind of deciding between before you found Christian Fellowship Church, or maybe this was the first one you found. Uh, maybe you remember a time when you had a move uh, and you had to say goodbye to a church and you had to find a new place. What were the top, what were the top factors that you looked for in a church? Maybe you didn't write it down in a list, but if you were to think back, what do you think were the top uh, items that you were looking for in a church to say, you know what, this is a good church, this is a healthy church, I'm gonna, I, this is something I'm going to stick with. Uh, if you had a friend that said, hey, I'm, I got a job transfer or something like that, I'm going to New York or wherever, and uh, they said, I need help finding a good church. What are those top things that you're looking for in a church? I think a lot of times what we hear, if we were honest with ourselves or if people were honest, they would say, I'm looking for a church that's friendly, welcoming. I'm looking for a church that's got good programs. I want something good for my kids. Um, Things like that. And you know what? Those aren't bad things. Those are good things. You don't want a church. Well, I definitely want a church that's boring. I definitely want to feel unwelcome. You know, no, obviously not. Obviously not. Um, but I wonder how many of us put at the top, I want to know what the elders are like. I think a lot of people don't know what elders are. You, know, you go to a website and click. You know, maybe they have the pastor on there, they have the pastor's wife, the kids, what, what the kids like to eat, where the kids go to school, you know, how many bicycles they have, nothing about elders, okay. Um, now, we're going to get into this, but a pastor is an elder, and sometimes people will put pastor at the top, but what about the pastor are they putting at the top? Sometimes it's, I just want to make sure his sermons are not boring. Now again, we don't want sermons to be boring, but is that the grid? Is that the grid the pastor is entertaining? If you're looking for a church where the pastor's preaching is not boring, it's kind of like saying, I'm looking for a church where the pastor's preaching entertains me, engages me, and maybe that's really what's going on when we're clicking on the sermon, the website of the church, or we're coming to a church for the first time. We're trying to see, is, is this... Is this guy going to make me laugh? Is he going to make me feel good about myself? Um, it would be really easy uh, to do the whole uh, motivational speaker thing, you know, pump you up. But is that the bar? Is that the bar? And this letter to Titus, and we're going through this letter, uh, uh, the book of Titus. Paul explains to Titus the importance of installing elders in churches because elders, the church leaders, are essential for the health of a church. And if you don't have a Bible, we can slip one to you. Um, and we're going to turn right there now to the book of Titus. Toward the back of your Bible, 
If you get to Ephesians, you'll see right after Ephesians, First and Second Timothy, and then Titus. It's easy to pass by it because it's short, but it's not short because it's less important. The letter of Paul to Titus. Now you'll remember last week we talked about how Paul left Titus. Now presumably Paul and Titus evangelized uh, Crete. And they went around and proclaimed the gospel. People are getting saved. Paul had to go and he left Titus. He tells us in the opening verses, he left Titus so that Titus could set things in order in the church. They weren't finished with their job. A bunch of people saved, meeting together, okay, presumably singing and doing whatever they do to get together and praying, obviously, as a church. We learned that in Acts, the early church. They got together, they devoted themselves to fellowship, to prayer. But the church needs to be set in order. You hear people tell you, I like, I like Jesus, I just don't like organized religion. Well, then you don't like Jesus because the first thing Jesus did was tell his disciples to organize this thing. Don't be just running around teaching anything and everybody could just stand up and say anything they want. That's not how this is going to go. You need to set the church in order. And the way you're going to set the church in order is to elect elders. So we pick that up. Titus chapter 1, verse 5. Titus, this is why I left you in Crete. Paul writing to Titus. This is why I left you there. So that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So how do you put a church in order? You start with elders. That's where it begins. Now remember, why is this important? Is Paul just sort of an organizational freak? Is he sort of a precursor to Franklin Covey, you know, organizational planner type dudes, you know, with his little glasses and his little planner, little boxes to put everything into? Did he color code everything? I don't know if Paul was like that personality-wise, but that, that's beside the point. The reason why he wants the church set in order is the reason that he gives in the opening verses when he says, I'm writing this letter to you for the sake of the faith of God's elect. You remember that in verse 1. In order for the people in Crete that are Christians now, in order for their faith to grow, for the sake of their faith, I need to write this letter to you. And the first thing I'm going to come out of the box with is you need to set the churches in order. And to set them in order, it's not make sure they have a building. It's not make sure they have a good service plan. They have to have so many musicians. No. But they need elders. And so he says the very reason why Titus is there. Don't lose sight of your mission. Your mission is to point elders in every town as I directed you. In other words, he told them this already. He's just reminding him. He directed him in this already. And he's reminding them and he's putting it down on paper for the benefit of other churches like ours. This is what a church needs to do. If a church is going to be faithful, if a church is going to grow in their faith, they need elders. And so godly, knowledgeable men are necessary for the health of a church. Because when he tells them to appoint elders, he reminds them that this is not a popularity contest. When you appoint elders in a church, you're not going, hey, who does everybody like the most? Who's, uh, who's the life of the party when they walk into a room and everyone goes, oh my goodness, John is here. You know, okay, let's make John an elder. No, that's not how it goes. It's not a popularity contest. It's not about charisma. Well, what is it about then? Well, he gives that to them in verse 6. If anyone is above reproach. Now, that, that phrase, above reproach, is sort of the, 
the line at the top of the page, and then everything else we're going to read is a description of what does it mean to be above reproach. Because that's a good question. I hear that thrown around a lot in Christian circles. I want to be above reproach, and sometimes we almost make it mean like perfection. Well, he's not above reproach. Let me tell you something, brother. You're not above reproach either, man. If we're going to go down that road, nobody is completely above reproach. Well, then, you know, if Titus took it that way, he'd go, well, I guess nobody's going to be an elder then. You know, what am I even doing here? No, it doesn't mean perfect. It doesn't mean perfect. At the same time, it doesn't mean throw the guidelines out the window, and since none of us are perfect, then who cares who's an elder? No. Above reproach means that you're, even though you might mess up and you have mistakes, and of course you're not perfect, your life can basically be defined in these ways. In what ways? Well, he gives us some descriptions. And the first couple ones, especially the first one that he gets into, my goodness, it's debated. There's books written on it. You know, there's, uh, there's books you could pick up on four views of this and five views of that. This is one of them, okay? And uh, when he's describing what it means for a leader in the church to be above reproach, in other words, um, he's not, he doesn't disappoint. He matches what he's expected to be. He matches what he's expected to do. That's what above reproach means. And the first thing he says is the husband of one wife. That this, this person needs to be the husband of one wife. This leader in the church, for the church to be set in order, they need elders. What kind of elder are you going to pick? Someone who's above reproach. What does above reproach look like? He needs to be the husband of one wife. Now, the reason why this is debated is because, well, it's because we're silly. You know, we, we, we read into it things that probably weren't there in the beginning. Uh, someone might say, well, a husband of one wife as opposed to what? As opposed to a husband of two wives, three wives, all right, that's polygamy. Well, no, and the reason why it's no, and I'm going to give you the reason, one is because it's debatable whether that was even popular at that time in in Crete. Crete was pretty bad, but it's debatable if if polygamy was popular. Uh, the, The stronger reason why is the same phrase is used in 1 Timothy 5 of women, uh, and when it's used of women, if it means polygamy, then it's when it's used of women, then it would have to mean polyandry. In other words, not having multiple husbands, which is completely unheard of, for sure unheard of. Nobody was doing that then. So if it didn't mean that in First Timothy 5, it doesn't mean that in Titus 1 because it's the same phrase. Okay? So he's not going after polygamy. He's not going now. When you're going through these churches and you're trying to find a good Christian man, you're going to have to weed out all these guys that are married to multiple women. You know, not happening. Okay? So what does he mean? Some people think it means that uh, the elder needs to be married. He's just saying he just needs to be married. And that he's not qualified to be an elder unless he's married. He has to be the husband of wife. But that doesn't make any sense because the next line is that uh, his children are supposed to be believers. So if he's supposed to be married, then he also can't just be married, but he has to have children. He can't just have one child because it says children, plural. So you're graduating seminary, you got married, you have one kid, and you need another one in the oven before you can start setting resumes out. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? Okay, so it's not saying he has to be married. It's saying if he's married, he's the husband of one wife, not as opposed to multiple wives, but married to one wife. Now, a more common view of this is that 
the man should never have a divorce in his track record and then remarry to someone else. Because if he divorced one woman and then remarried another woman, in his track record, he's the husband of two wives. The reason why that's not the answer, the reason why that is not the answer, is because the Bible doesn't teach us that if somebody has a marriage in the past and a marriage now, that they're married to two people at that now, at that time now. That's why Paul says if, like, if a divorce happened in the past and you're remarried now, the solution is not, oh, I became a Christian, I realized divorce is wrong. Divorce here and go back to that person. No, this is your marriage now. You're not married to two people, you're married to this person now. So that, that is not the case. Also, Scripture has exceptions, they're rare. But there are exceptions to the divorce rule, to the no divorce rule. Now, if there are exceptions to the no divorce rule, and what Paul is saying here is, except for elders, there's an exception to the exception. In other words, there are cases in which you are permitted to divorce. There's not a lot of cases, but there are some cases where divorce is biblically permitted. Unless you're an elder, then it's not permitted at all. You would think he would say that. Why not just say, no divorce? There's a word for divorce, but it doesn't say that. He says, husband of one wife. In fact, when you're reading this in the plain Greek, not the English translation that we have, if you were accessing the plain Greek, the literal translation, word for word, was that the elder should be a one-woman man. That's how it's literally translated. Well, then you go, well, why did these goofballs say one? Why did they say husband instead of man? And why did they say wife instead of woman? Well, A, because the words can mean either. And B, because if you're a one-woman man, you're married. You can't really say you're a one-woman man if you're dating. Because what if it doesn't work out and then you date somebody else? That wasn't your one woman. But if you say, this is my one woman for the rest of my life. This is my one woman. I'm their one man. This is a oneness here. That's marriage. And so they translate it husband and wife because what else does it mean? He's not dating. He's married. And when he's married, he's faithful to the one woman that is his wife. He doesn't entertain other women. He doesn't think about going after other women. He doesn't go after other women. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't go outside of the bounds of his marriage with other women. He's a one-woman man. And we can use that phrase in English. He's a one-woman man. What do we mean by that? He's faithful to his wife. That's what it means. So, when he's explaining to Timothy, or to Titus rather, there's so many parallel passages to his letters to Timothy. But in Titus 1, he, gives a, he starts the list of what qualifies an elder, and he starts in verse 6 with uh, the husband of one wife. Then he moves further into the household. If he has children, his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now there's another tough one. There's another tough one, okay? Uh, I've wrestled with this. If one of my children decides to not follow Christ, I'm out. It doesn't matter how much you like me. I'm disqualified according to Titus. Is that what it means? Does it mean that the child has to make a faith decision to follow Christ? I don't think that's what it means. I'm going to explain why. Okay. The word believer there means faithful. And it could be translated either way. 
Sometimes if you have multiple translations of a Bible and you take two of them next to each other and a lot of the words look exactly the same, maybe you have an NIV next to an ESV or a KJV next to an NRSV or whatever it is, a lot of the words look the same and then you'll see a little hiccup when some translations say believe, a believer, and other translations say faithful. What is the difference? Well, in the Greek it's the same word. That's the problem. The word for faith, you can use it as a verb to believe or you can use it as an adjective, being faithful, right? It's the same word, but is it a verb? Is it an adjective? So what this is, what the translators are trying to figure out, is he's saying that the children need to be believers or that the children need to act faithfully? And there's a big difference there. You can have a child that hasn't trusted their lives to Christ, but they're obedient. They follow the rules. You can have someone who entrusted their life to Christ and then they don't really act like it. But what this is saying here is that the children need to be faithful. And here's why I think that. The reason why I think that is because it matches when he gives you the negative. They need to be like this, not like that. And when he says not like that, he doesn't say believers, not pagans. He doesn't say believers, not unbelievers. No, he says believers, not insubordinate or a life defined of debauchery or rebellion. That's how they behave. Insubordination or rebellion, debauchery, that's how, that's how a kid can behave. So what does believer mean? It's, he's going after behavior. Faithful. There's a reason why we know this is when he gives the same set of instructions to Timothy, he doesn't say believer or faithful. He just says make sure that they're submissive. And then he gives Timothy the reason why. How can an elder lead a church if he can't lead his house? That's the reasoning. Now can an elder make sure That people in the church are saved? No. Out of his hands. He cannot make the church be saved. He can't make someone come in visiting, make them come down the aisle and repent. He can't make it happen. And same reason why he can't make his children do it either. But he can establish order. Establish rules. And if an elder is going to be in charge of a church, leading a church, and there are going to be church discipline issues... There are going to be times when people are out of line and they need to be told that they, that they need to shape up or they're outside of the circle. Listen, that's called church discipline. And who needs to lead that? The leaders of the church need to lead that. The elders of the church need to lead that. What Paul is telling Timothy in the other letter is that a guy can't do that if he's not doing it in his own house. Peter, put it down. Put it down, Peter. No, Dad, you're an idiot. Oh, Peter, those aren't nice words. Peter, I told you, put it down, Peter. Shut up, Dad. Oh, man. <laughs> can't be an elder. You can't. But if he knows how to establish discipline in his house, then that can translate over to a church where you're going to have tougher cases than little snot-nosed Peter. If you're in here and your name is Peter, I'm sorry. I just, I just, <laughs> names come to my head. I don't know. So what is he telling Titus, you're going to pick guys that if they're married, they're faithful to their wife. If they have kids, their kids aren't wily and running all over the place and and breaking rules. Now listen, some churches take this to the extreme. And the children of the pastor and the children of the elders end up leaving the faith because they grew up in a church where everyone is looking at them. Their kids could do whatever they want, but if the pastor's kid, if he doesn't mess up, if they walk by a piece of litter on the floor and they didn't pick up the litter, wow, what a dirty child. We don't do that to the kids, okay? Well, what we're asking is that the leader of the church is able to lead their house well. That they're not ignoring their house in order to try to lead the church. 
So those are the two biggies. Husband of one wife. Children are believers. I think it should be better translated. Children that are faithful and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Why? Because an overseer, verse 7, an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. Now, if you notice, he did a little switch on us. He started out talking about elders, and then in verse 7 he says, because an overseer, he switched switched titles on us. And I'm saying title because the Greek behind that is episkopos, from which we get bishop. And you all know that there's churches where you have elders, and maybe you have a pastor, but he's a bishop, right? It's a different title. Is that what Paul is doing here? Is he switching gears? Now, I'm done talking about elders. Elders, all they need to do is be married and lead their children well. But bishops, now bishops need to do these other things. No, that's not what he's saying. In fact, when you read consistently in all the New Testament letters, elder, pastor or shepherd, same word, and bishop slash overseer, same word. There's three terms. Elder, overseer, pastor. Or elder, bishop, uh, what did I say? Elder, elder, uh, overseer is bishop, and pastor is shepherd. Those three terms are used interchangeably. They're used interchangeably. Right? If I tell Raquel, hey, pass me my pullover. I need my sweater. She's not giving me two things. She's giving me one thing, right? So different terms that speak to the same reality. It wouldn't make sense when you're reading this text that uh, the only qualifications needed for an elder are what his house is like, but all the qualifications needed for an overseer or whether he gets drunk and if he's hospitable. That that doesn't make sense. He's continuing the thought of what he's looking for when he's putting these elders in place. Now, why do I belabor that point? Because I'm going to take a time out right here and define terms a little bit because we have some issues in churches today that are not healthy. And then it trickles down into the, the, the lack of health in the church. And it's like, what's going on? We've got awesome worship, beautiful music. We've got great you know, ambiance, you know, the preaching is strong. How come our church is, is having a rough time? Because maybe we're not paying attention to the stuff that Jesus counts first. And making sure that a church is functioning under the proper leadership of healthy elders is number one. Now, what we ha- the problem that we have, I'm going to just put that there for a second, we're putting a pause on that. Elder, overseer. The problem we have when we, when we divide terms as we cause a division that the Bible doesn't give us, okay? What do we typically do? What we'll typically do is we'll have vocational pastors and lay elders. Division. Typically, when we say the word elder, we think of the lay guy. The guy that didn't go to seminary, he's got a job, he's got a family, he's a great guy. He's a leader in the church, but volunteer guy. When we say pastor, we mean the guy that went to seminary, has the degrees, maybe he writes, maybe he teaches, but he's the guy that we uh, support so that he doesn't have to go and get another job, so that he can focus full time. He's the guy that leads meetings, he's the guy that leads us in prayer, he's kind of the front man that bears more of the weight, and then we kind of surround him around with some of the lay volunteer elders, pastor over here, elders over there. A couple years ago, a few years ago, I just, I'm reading through the New Testament and I'm just trying to be honest with myself and I'm thinking, man, that doesn't add up. You, you never see that. 
Now make sure that you get a few guys that are not paid and then a few guys that are paid. And make sure that these guys don't have as much weight in the church as this guy, but make sure that this guy doesn't do too much. These guys can pull him down from the shelf if he gets a little cocky. And make it work that you just don't see it. You just see elders, pastors, overseers, leading churches, and that's it. It's kind of like figure it out if they're going to be full-time or part-time or half-time or seminary educated or not educated or whatever. You all figure that out. Use wisdom. But the main thing is these qualifications that I'm giving you. And it has nothing to do with pay. It has nothing to do with education. None of these things in this list have anything to do with those things. So the distinction that we have in many churches between elders over there and pastors over there is not a biblical distinction. And what I just said is not popular even among some of my friends. Because we have systems and churches that have been placed for so long in denominations, sometimes even outside of denominations, and to, to question that system is to, is, to, is to ruffle a whole lot of feathers. Okay? I don't know if it's a hill to die on for those guys, but listen. A couple years ago, I sat with Andy and Bill. We went through a book called Biblical Eldership, Alexander Strauch. If you're nerdy enough to want to dive into that, it's this thick. It's awesome. Go through it. It'll unpack all of this for you. I think it's good to know what's going on in church life. But what I pitched to them, and they agreed, I said, here's what we normally have. We have pastors that, are, that have a board of elders. And the board of elders, they don't lead the church. They don't shepherd the church. They, they don't necessarily do that stuff. They just thumb up or thumb down what the pastor presents at the board meeting. And then when the pastor leaves the board meeting, the pastor does the work, and the pastor does the preaching, and the pastor does the teaching, and the pastor does the discipling, and the pastor does the, the um, counseling, and the pastor does all the visits. And then he reports back to the board, and the board of elders go, how'd you do? How are you doing? Are you doing better? Are you doing good? If the congregation get ticked off at the pastor, the congregation doesn't go to the pastor because he's too high and mighty. The congregation goes to the elders because they're one of them and say, elders, you need to talk to pastor. At the next board meeting, they pull in the pastor, and they say, pastor, thumbs down on these things you've been doing. You need to start doing this. Unbiblical. Because the biblical portrait is just elders. Elders are shepherds. Shepherds are overseers. They are not three different offices. They're not two different offices. They're one role. So my job, biblically speaking, is the same job as Bill's and it's the same as Andy's. Now there are differences in practice. In practice, I have more time to devote to it than they do. In reality, I have more time that I've spent studying scripture than them because it's a vocational difference, but it's not a role difference. Okay? So what we've been doing is I said, listen, uh, we need to make sure that the elders in our church have teaching roles. Uh, when Andy came on, I promised him, you don't have to stand up in front of people. You don't need to do it, man. You know? Because we don't see he has to stand up and preach in front of people. We don't see that. But we do see the shepherding role. We do see this uh, role of praying over people. We do see this role of being able to give counsel. Uh, we do see this, these qualifications of managing your household well so that you can manage the church. And those are the kind of guys you want leading a church. Not board elders that just are the voice of the people. You want leaders. And that's what I want. right? So one of the dangers is we lower the the lay guys, the lay elders, we lower them to something we call elder, which isn't as much as pastor. And that's not biblical. Elder is a pastor. 
Now, we still kind of use that term to just not confuse people. Elders, pastor, that's fine. I don't care. You switch it, overseer, bishop, I don't care, right? They're all biblical terms. But the other uh, danger that we have when we make that distinction is lowering, uh, also lowering the pastor role. Sometimes you go to church and they have, uh, you know, they've got the pastor of administration, the pastor of finances, the pastor of bookkeeping, the pastor of, of bulletins, the pastor of chairs, the pastor of the parking lot, the pastor of percussion, the pastor of Xerox. I'm almost not kidding. It's the pastor of everything. They just slap pastor next to a name, meaning that this person is in charge of stuff. A pastor's role is to shepherd the congregation through teaching the word of God. That doesn't mean they don't do more than that. That means they can never do less than that. A pastor or an elder, a shepherd, an overseer, a bishop, leads the church of God by teaching the word of God. That's what an elder does. That's what a pastor does. If you have someone in charge of finances, that's great. Call them something. Give them a title. That's fine. Executive director of something. But not pastor of three-year-olds and the pastor of the carpet. And listen, all those things need to happen. All those things need to happen. And there's volunteers and we can create ministry teams and all that's great. But we protect the role, the the term pastor, we protect it for the role that's described in Scripture, which is teaching the congregation doctrine. And we're going to see that as we push through. But when you look at these next uh, few verses, he gives us, he gives us in this list um, five negatives that should not define an elder and then eight positives that should define an elder. Five negatives that should not define an elder, eight positives that should define an elder. By the way, I was going to go into this, but we're running out of time. If later you want more on why there should be more than one elder in a church, there's a case for that. But if you go back to the top of the verse, appoint elders, plural, in every city. Okay, so churches, ideally, biblically, should not just have one guy. They should be surrounded by other guys as well. Okay, so he gives them five negatives that should not define a pastor or an elder, and then six positives that should define uh, the elder or the pastor and here's what it looks like, starting in verse 7. His, what his life looks like. An overseer is God's steward, and he must be above reproach. Second time he says that, and then he's going to explain it again. He must not be arrogant, or quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain. Okay, how many times have you heard the pastor runs off with the money, and he's been sneaking money here, and it's terrible. It's terrible. Okay. Um, When you look at these things, you're going, man, is he ever arrogant? Does he ever have a short temper? Yeah, maybe sometimes, but if he has a pattern where that's what he's demonstrating, then that's a a disqualification. I meet meet some guys like that. It's a little scary, and it's not often, but sometimes I meet guys like other pastors at like a conference or something like that, and they're getting all frazzled, like, oh, where's my ID? I don't know where my ID is. Oh, my goodness. I can't believe this conference hasn't started yet. You know, I don't want to judge, but I'm like, man, I wonder if the congregation sees that or not. You know the danger? <laughs> I keep getting on little soapboxes, right? So you have to figure them. But the danger of the real huge churches 
where you could barely see the pastor teaching, so you have to watch him on a screen, or maybe you're on a campus where the pastor's not even there and you watch him on a screen. The danger there is you have no idea if he matches this or not. You don't know the dude. He's not been to your house. You've not had lunch with him. You don't rub shoulders with him in the foyer. Dangerous. I think it's dangerous. Okay, I'm not saying all those churches have lost their lampstands. I'm just saying that's down, going down a path where it's easy to lose sight of what we have here. Is the guy arrogant? Is he quick-tempered? Is he a drunkard? That doesn't mean he can't drink. It just means he has to know where the line is and respect it. Is he violent? Is he greedy for gain? And then the positives, verse 8. Here's what he should look like. He's hospitable. In other words, he doesn't just give you time at church, but outside of church, he, he doesn't want to welcome anybody. He doesn't want anybody, you know... No, no, no. He's hospitable. He's a lover of good. How obvious should that one be? Right? He, loves, he loves what's good. He's self-controlled. He's upright. He's holy and disciplined. You have three guys here that right now, we probably, <laughs> maybe we should quit. You know, holy? It's what we strive to be. It's what we hope we are in Christ and by God's grace we've been given a congregation that makes that easy but he's upright he's holy and he's disciplined and then verse 9 what he should do all these things are what he is and then finally verse 9 what he does and then it's short many churches would reverse it the qualification would be one or two lines. Hey, you know, he's a nice, he's a holy guy, good education. And then he's got to do boom, bing, bang, bing. Mm. But this is the opposite. He's got to be this, that, this, this, that. I'm not sure if he's that. Well, investigate more before you hire the guy. Okay? But what he does is pretty simple in verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. In other words, he doesn't veer from it. He sticks with the way that this has been passed down to generations in a trustworthy way. He doesn't stick to it just because of tradition, but he sticks to what the Bible says. He sticks to what the Word teaches. When you're listening, if you're checking out a church and you're going, is this elder on point? You're not asking yourself, are his jokes funny? What you're asking is, the stuff that's coming out of his mouth, when I look down on the page that he told us to turn to, if he even told us to turn anywhere, does it match what's on the page, what's coming out of his mouth? That's the measure of a preacher. Now, if it's entertaining, if it's, if it's engaging, that's great. And then those are skills that preachers can work on. But it has to be what the Bible's saying. Right? That's how you know he's holding firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he can do two things. Be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. To give instruction and to rebuke those who contradict that instruction. That is the elder's role in a church. That's why it's so vitally important. I mentioned this before. When, when Jesus uh, delivers, uh, sends these letters to the seven churches in the beginning of Revelation, most of the stuff that he's commending them on or not commending them on is how they're dealing with teach, false teaching. Are you accepting false teaching? Are you pushing false teaching out? How are you handling false teaching? Are you protecting 
protecting solid doctrine. You read First and Second Timothy, and Paul's telling Timothy how to make sure the church in Ephesus is healthy, because Ephesus is where Timothy was. And he's got doctrine, solid doctrine, sound doctrine, healthy teaching all over those letters. And then now we're going through the book of Titus, and the title of the series, if you look in the front of your bulletin, is Truth and Godliness. You can't have godliness without truth. Now how do we know we're getting truth? How do we access truth? How do we make sure that we're eating the nutrients that are necessary for truth? Well, you make sure there's chefs in the church. And you make those sure those chefs aren't cooking junk. You make sure they're cooking organic stuff that's nutritious to you so you can grow. And that's their role. You want to protect the elders' time in order to do that. If the elders are running around cleaning carpets and hanging drapes and the elders are running around answering phone calls and making sure there's water for the welcoming, listen, I'm not saying we don't pay attention to that. In a small church, there's a lot of stuff that I do that some of my friends in bigger churches don't do just because that's the nature of being in a smaller church. But you want to make sure that your pastors and your elders, their time is protected so that they can read so that they can study, so that they can memorize some stuff, so that they are able to teach. And when something comes up that doesn't sound right, these are the guys that can go after that. Protect the flock from the false teaching of wolves. And so he makes that really clear. This is their job. And so all the qualifications, the first few verses, talk about his godliness. And his godliness is is shown in those qualifications that he's hospitable that he's not ill-tempered that he he's not violent that's his godliness but aside from that is the knowledge that he's supposed to have so he can teach truth godliness and truth truth and godliness which is the theme of this letter therefore an elder or a pastor is supposed to be the embodiment of truth in godliness i don't just speak it up here when it's sunday and it's ten, you know whatever ten thirty when i get up here and i and i speak it and then when i go to the restaurant to eat for lunch i'm yelling at the waitress no truth and godliness together because that's what we're all supposed to be you can skip your eyes up and go oh my goodness i'm supposed to be that and the only reason why he specifies that elders should be that is because elders are supposed to exemplify what a christian should be so it's not elders should be hospitable. I don't have to be that. Elders shouldn't be violent, but I can punch somebody in the face. No. They're leading by example. And they're learning so that they can teach their truth and godliness embodied. Now, we need to make sure that our churches are led by godly, knowledgeable men. And this is the kind of application where it's not like, now go home and do this. It's not that kind of message. The kind of message it is, is we want you to ingest the truth about what church is. What church is really about. I'm I'm appreciative of you guys. Because you guys made sure that I was able to get the degree, the the, the doctorate that I studied for the last few years. Feels like it was the last 10 years or something. It feels like it took forever. But, you know, I'm going to be walking in May. You guys did that. You guys did that. Okay. Um, Anytime anyone ever accesses the stuff that I wrote and they're blessed by it, you guys did that. Because you guys made sure that my time was protected in order to do that. No one at once has ever said, Pastor, I noticed that you dropped the ball on this thing. Is that because you're doing all this newfangled doctorate thing? No. You guys have appreciated it. 
You know, I did a workshop here in the church. I invited about maybe 10, 11, 12 guys to come out and listen to this thing that is the result of my, uh, my thesis, my work in the doctorate. 27 pastors showed up to that thing. I had lay elders there. I had full-time guys there. Um, some guys came with their whole staff. It was, they were blessed by it. The feedback was great. Oh, man, we need this. This was great. This was awesome. Why am I saying that? Because you guys did that. You guys did that. If by God's grace I'm able to go overseas to a closed communist country and teach 50 or more underground pastors, a bunch of Titus guys, right? The kind of guys that Titus would pick in a place like that and get to teach them how to teach people, you guys do that. You guys do that by being the kind of church that recognizes what church is really about. Making sure that the pastor is worthy to teach, he's able to teach, and that he has the time to do it. And uh, I think you guys are that church. I think you guys are uh, an example of this kind of church. This kind of church. So, if you ever have someone ask you, hey, I need, a, I need to find the church, but they don't live close enough to go to CFC, and you decide to help them find the church, what are the top things you're going to look at? You've got to look at the leadership. You've got to look at the leadership. You may not be able to investigate deeply enough to know whether the guys are arrogant or whether the guys are hospitable, you know, but at least find out what they're teaching. At least find out what the doctrine is like. Click a couple sermons, okay, and see if the teaching is off. Next week, if you drop your eyes down to the next paragraph, you get a little preview of next week's sermon. Next week, I'm going to give you guys some principles, some tools in your tool belt, okay, to help discern when teaching is off base or when teaching is solid, okay? Um, it's, it's, it's not something you just go on your gut. You should have some parameters for that. But you can help others find healthy churches when you understand that you start with what's being taught by the leadership in that church. Okay, if you get a chance after the service, you guys congratulate me all the time and you thank me all the time and you guys are so gracious. If it's been a while since you've done that with Bill and Andy, they're kind of like the behind the scenes guys, but they're elders. They're shepherds. All three of us have a lot of things we see in ourselves that we can work on. But if you've been blessed by their ministry and by this church, take a moment to give each of them $100. Okay, (laughs) don't be cheap. All right, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up.